0: Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 84, Gerald of Wales. Previously, we talked about one aspect of the Welsh Church and the rise of the Cistercians, monks. This week, we're going to talk about an equally influential figure who has given us a larger understanding of the Welsh from mostly a Norman understanding or perspective. His name is Gerald, better known to us as Gerald of Wales, or in Latin, Geraldus Gambrinus. Gerald was born in Beer, in a farmland area of Dovid. His grandmother was Nest, the former princess of Doithbarth, who married the local Norman marcher lord, as we've talked about earlier. According to historian John Davies, Gerald was a complicated character. Gerald took pride in his Welsh descent, as we mentioned, his ancestry was important to his station— as Nest was the daughter of Rhysap Tudor, the last prince of Deuthbar to that point, but he complained that he was too much of a Norman for the Welsh, and too much of a Welshman for the Normans. Gerald may have spent his youth in Wales, but he was educated in Paris as a clergyman, and on his return would be fluent in French and Latin, but not necessarily in his grandmother's native tongue. He in fact arrived in Wales In 1174, after spending nine years in France, learning and growing as a student and cleric, he would be settled into Brecon as an archdeacon and put to work straightening out local ties and excommunicating those that tried to defraud the church. Um, This was an important point for a lot of churches at this time period and will become a bone of contention in the uh, Protestant era. But tithes were set aside for landholders, specifically rich landholders, to pay money and to help fund church construction, church property, all of those kind of things. And to be fair, to, in effect, help support the social services that came through the churches at the time. In fact, a lot of the social assistance that the poor had came through the church alone and largely were ignored by those of the upper class and and the nobility. So these kind of things were important, and they were things that they needed. Of course, that money was also used for other things. It was used for elaborate church buildings and for magnifying your local bishop and priest. So there is a bit of that, too. So let's, let's be fair and say there was a bit of a combination of things. Gerald himself was often seemed to want the Welsh to join a more Norman mentality, throw down past stereotypes, and get with the new cultural programme. Uh, specifically, he seemed to portray the Welsh as somewhat unwilling to join Catholic ideals fully and that one of his big things was is his infinite emphasis on obedience and to central authority. While this makes sense from an Anglo-Norman perspective, as of course King being the head of the country, and the pope being the head of the church, all of whom would have feudal uh, demands put upon everybody below them and things that they would have to meet. This would include the popes to a degree. And so this idea of a hierarchy and a centralization of said hierarchy was important in both of those cases. So of course this would be something that he'd want to integrate into a Welsh society, which largely was broken down into squabbling princes and kings that were spread across a fairly wide and varied landscape where the idea of being one people or one unified group was very unlikely at that point in time. And in fact, the divide even between those in the Welsh marches who were of Welsh descent and those in the northern half, which were of Welsh descent, was already starting to show in this time period, there was a concept of being uh, independent Welsh versus non-independent Welsh or southern Welsh versus northern Welsh. So there is a lot of this. A lot of these comparisons are going on and they are consistently happening across both sides, you know, from one town to the next. You know, who's more Welsh? Who's more, you know, the the, the key person or the key figure in Welsh kingdoms and Welsh history, and all of these things were under fire and under argument. In fact, Gerald is one of the people who takes Geoffrey of Monmouth to task over what he calls his lying and deceit over the Welsh ancestry. So even to a point where he is compared to Geoffrey, even though they don't live at the same time period, there are comparisons made to the two of them because both of them were very uh, well healed scholars of clerical natures who would write extensive books but neither one of which by the way could really speak Welsh and neither one of which knew their country well enough to really comment I mean Gerald at least came back uh Jeffrey never did he spent his entire most of his entire adult life actually in uh France, and the only time he finally had a bishopric to come back to in Wales, he never reached it because he passed away. So even though he represents himself as being someone important to Welsh history and a contributor to Welsh uh, nationalism, he really wasn't that attached to it anymore, other than obviously from the fact that he was born there and he held some loyalty to it because of that. And largely, he was writing to French clerics and nobility rather than to Welsh ones. So it's interesting to kind of see that dynamic come out. And Gerald seemed to always be fighting that, or at least always trying to poke holes in in the arguments of others. One of the biggest things that we learn as we start to read up on Gerald is that he had a bit of an ego. He thought himself better than most men, more read, better learned than most was able to write better than most. His books were better than your books. Uh, And if you didn't know that, just ask him. He'd come tell you. He would share his book with you and then ask you every day you're with him. You know, how's it going? What do you think? Do you like it? And so he was very much self-absorbed, self-obsessed. He saw himself as being the best at everything. He was the most handsome. He was the most learned. He you know nothing really showed on him that said he was humble as you would think a follower of a god who expects humility to be he very much showed none of that and you can see that his education if anything seemed to bulwark that idea rather than dismiss it and it's interesting to kind of take that into account and so when when he's tasked to go with uh archbishop baldwin and go to the rest of Wales to try and pursue getting uh, adherents to come for the Crusades in 1188. It's done, obviously, with certain things intent. By this point already, he's been back in Britain, and specifically Wales, you know, for almost 15 years. He has grown as a figure in the area... And he's already frustrated with what's gone on. He's struggling with the fact that he can't get what he wants, which is the archbishopric in Daphid and the bishopric in Daphid at that. He got very frustrated by that whole thing. And you can tell that it was something he was always trying to get a hold of. He always wanted St. David's to be separate of Canterbury, to be its own archbishopric, so that it would be only responsible to the Pope, not to the local English archbishopric in Canterbury. So he was constantly trying to push this agenda. And of course, that didn't win him a lot of friends with the Henrys and the these people who looked at him as being more of a nuisance and he was too local and too concerned about local politics and not concerned enough about you know the the whole of the English politics so in a way when he suggests this idea of being too Welsh for some and too English for others that's kind of where it comes from it comes from the idea that the the English nobility were never going to take him seriously and never really going to bend to what he wanted simply because to them he was a Welshman whereas for Welshmen they went and said well just because your grandmother's nest it doesn't mean anything you're not really Welsh in the same way and so for some they would look at him as being not very Welsh yet at the same time he did try and advocate for the Welsh population. He was, in his later years especially, wanted the Welsh to be more a part of this Norman morality and mentality. He wanted to throw down past stereotypes and to get Welsh in a new cultural program. Specifically, he seemed to want to portray the Welsh as someone somewhat separate and apart yet unique and noble because of it much like i think in some ways he's very similar to tacitus who is writing things in a way that he's now the difference is of course tacitus is a roman writing about the british whereas we have a a, a part welsh person who's lived in wales a fair amount of his life who's writing from what legitimately could be argued a welsh perspective and so he has a different agenda but It's still that idea that the Welsh are somehow more noble, you know, they're, they're, they're hard fighters, they try their best, they're emotional, they're passionate, all of those things that, that you heard when you read Tacitus, and very similar arguments and similar ideas. But certainly, even as we might say, he was a little bit full of himself and had a lot of ideals that were kind of a little ridiculous, Gerald... Was an able writer. You read his his writings, and it's very easy to follow and understand. He wasn't complex. He wasn't like Gildas, who, while he was able to write in a form of Latin, it was obviously a lot more rudimentary than the more formal Latin of the Roman period. This was someone who was a well taught, well educated scholar, who came from one of the best universities in the world at the time, and the oldest as it turns out, in Paris, and so he had been taught, and he understood and was able to write very clearly and fluidly, and in a way that was informative and and entertaining, because he could tell stories, he could bring up rumors and ideals, and really, if you think about it, not dissimilar from Geoffrey. Thus, the comparisons are there, right? For example, he tells a story of Ivar Box attack upon Cardiff Castle. He also tells a story about the refusal of the birds of Llangor Lake to sing to anyone save their true lord, um, and the declarations uh, and expressions and the fears of the old man of Penkedir. So there are stories within Gerald's lifetime that he writes about. They're obviously you know, either all the wives tales or old cultural ideas or memory, uh, something we've talked about before, where basically people remember something the way it was, whether it actually was or not, and so there's a little bit of that going on too. So there is a lot of this kind of thing, but still even within that, he gives us a really interesting portrait of Wales in a time period where Wales is on the brink of a massive sea change coming we're going to reach very soon, and in fact Gerald even writes about first meeting uh, Llewellyn the Great, and how that meeting taught him that even at a very young age Llewellyn was very driven and very much going to be aggressively seeking the kingdom, because in the story he tells he runs into Llewellyn on his way to go to take on his uncles in a battle. And so his uh, uncles, of course, at the time, are leading Gwyneth. So he has a lot of drive and a lot of idealism and a lot of fervent patriotism, which you can see. So Gerald brings all this up and all this out in the public eye. And I think it's a fascinating study of, of what his view at the time is of Wales and how he sees it. And he doesn't call it, you know, Britain. He doesn't call it, even to be fair, he doesn't call it Cymru. He calls it Wales. His patriotism is wrapped up in this name as much as it is anything else. Um, And in fact, one could argue that his patriotism was wrapped up mostly in his attempts to get the Sea of St. David and get it separated from canterbury so that he could use it because his feeling was that as a welshman he could never make any progress he was always put down because he was welsh which is interesting to sort of as we said earlier look at from the perspective that he had one welsh grandmother and the rest of them were english or norman at least gerald in 1197 and into the beginning of the 13th century, spends a lot of time writing down uh, scholarly works. And one of them that we have, even today, is The Journey Through Wales, which I think is a fascinating book. It's his description of his time during the the run-up to the missionary work for the Crusades and talking about his travels through Wales, which he did quite extensively with Baldwin. And he gives an accounting of all of that, which I thought was very fascinating to read. You you do get a lot of his mindset obviously and, and how it is kind of uh brought forward from his own perspective. But he writes eight different drafts. So this is someone who was continually trying to improve and get better. And there were different forewords depending on the versions we have. We have at least four original copies of at least the first two drafts and the first two forwards, the second forward I should say we have, but the first forward unfortunately went missing. We have records of what it might have said but we don't have the actual document. So, it's interesting to kind of see those things come about and how important he was. Obviously, his discussions were important enough that they were kept track of and continued to be rewritten. Um, But like so many before, when Bangor tried to become an independent see of Canterbury, and when David, St. David in the past, has tried to become an independent see, he couldn't get past the bias of the Pope, who saw England as more central and a more needed part of the country, and that Wales wasn't different enough, wasn't important enough really to have its own see, And no matter how hard he fought and how much he argued for it, he could never convince him. And the writings of Gerald offer proof that the Welsh in his age were acknowledged to be, and in some ways were, perceived as being a, a people with a defined territory, and that they had a common ancestry, and thus they would defend that identity. And so he's important in the cultural aspect of things. He's culturally important because he helps us know how the Welsh in the 12th and 13th centuries perceived themselves. Certainly it gives us a good idea of how Norman uh, nobility and Norman Welsh nobility specifically perceived themselves as Anglo-Normans became Anglo-Welsh and how that had influence on uh, both the Normans themselves by making them more driven to be Welsh and nationalistic in that way and perceive themselves as a part of the Welsh culture. And in some ways, it's kind of funny, they took over, but they got in reverse influenced by it. And I think that's an interesting dynamic. And it's and it's fascinating to kind of see how that growing desire to increase their own standing and their own political uh, acumen drove what amounts to a welsh cultural agenda and a welsh cultural and nationalistic agenda and this kind of had some ideals that worked for a lot of people this idea to create this minimal nationalization and this minimal culture was important to the Welsh population at the time. Certainly they talk lots about it, as as we'll read and discuss later. So Gerald is a microcosm of this whole attitude and this changing attitude and a changing alliances. And we'll see this going forward even into post-independence, where you have Welsh lords and English lords working together to take on other English lords. Or you have the nascent Prince of Wales, Owen Glendower, working with Hotspur and uh, others to try and take down um, Henry the Fourth. All of these things are happening, and they're not separate, and they're not interwoven, separate of the English reality. But, even within that, there's still this national movement within Wales, which is growing and is being fostered in some ways in opposition to the old country and the old ideals of being Britons and being Gwyneth peoples and Powys people and Doithbarth people. Now they're talking more about being Welsh people, and I think it's interesting to see that dynamic. And again, this is something we've talked a little bit about, and we'll continue to talk about it as it goes forward. Certainly as we look into this, this era, the dynamics that are creating this situation where you have a southern Welsh king or prince and a northern Welsh prince, which kind of divided the country into Anglo-Welsh and, and Old Welsh is something we see even today. I mean, there's still hints of this in the way that we see Wales now, where the West and the North are very much the Welsh language, independent supporting side of Wales, where the South, and specifically the East, are more Labour, more Conservative, more Liberal Democrat. They're not Plaid Cymru necessarily. Now, we're not going to get into the politics of now, But keep in mind that I think what we see is the nascent beginning of the Welsh nation state, at least from a cultural standpoint, if not necessarily from an overall united standpoint. In a way, the Britons of the past weren't as united as the Welsh of this period of time and in going forward will be. And in fact, in some ways, that is probably the most interesting thing to take away from all this. And I think it's it's a fascinating discussion that we're having with this, and I can't wait to continue to, to talk about it. And so next week we're going to get more and more into this and, and continue to move forward as we start to go towards the end. But we're not there yet, and when we do, uh, I can't wait to share it with you as we begin to talk about the rise of Llewellyn the Great and the rise of Gwyneth as the penultimate power in Wales before it comes all crashing down. Until next time, thank you, take care, and uh, thank you once again for all your support. If you want to send me an email, send me a message, you can do so at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at welshhistorypod or on Facebook at Welsh History Podcast, and we will... Definitely respond and definitely get back to you. And going forward, I hope we have many more fun things to talk about. Until next time, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The SIECLA, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The SIECLE, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.